When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. B is for buyback. Alphabet shares surge after an earnings beat. Misdelivered Amazon's earnings showing one day prime is denting profits. And Double Vision, SoftBank launching a second multi-billion dollar investment fund. This time though, no Saudis. It's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. No Friday feeling on this show, I can tell you. We've got all sorts of information for you. Earnings and data, of course, too. So let's get straight to it because we've had the uh, second quarter GDP numbers from the United States coming in at 2.1% annualized. It is a sharp drop from the first quarter's numbers, if you remember that 3.1% pace, but it is better than expected. Well, what did we see? Business investment falling, trade, inventories dragging, the support here coming from government and consumer spending. Christine Romers is going to break it down for us in a moment, but the key point here is, yes, it's backward-looking data, but it is important to understand what the trend looks like here, to understand what the Federal Reserve needs to be doing, if anything, as far as the economy is concerned. Right now, futures are higher this morning following a modest pullback in yesterday's trading session, around half a percent for the Dow and the S&P 500, 1% for the Nasdaq, for actually the worst performance in a month. Alphabet, Intel, Twitter helping provide some support today. We're also halfway through earnings season, of course, so worth at this stage taking stock. As expected, most firms beating significantly lowered profit expectations and actually at a stronger pace, the strongest pace, in fact, over the past three years. What did I say yesterday? Sack the analysts. Yes, I was just being naughty. But what we are hearing is that, that a number of big multinationals are warning about trade. The bottom line here is investors would be far more worried if it weren't for central bank easing. And that includes, of course, the Federal Reserve set to cut rates on Wednesday next week. But the guidance on future cuts is going to be key. And for that, of course, we need to understand the fundamentals. Let's get to the drivers and those U.S. growth stats. Christine Romans joins me. Christine, great to have you back with us on the show. Payback. I think is the name of the game. Payback for the strong trade or net export figures and inventory yep. figures in Q1 leaking away this time around. Yeah, and some revisions that we're trying to sort through here. But you're right. Um, payback indeed, because a lot of companies knew that higher tariffs are probably coming. And that helped juice 
first quarter, uh, first quarter numbers when he had 3.1% economic growth. And so then here, the second quarter numbers are 2.1%. So slicing a, a point there off of, of that growth. Still, it's stable. It's hanging in there. I mean, when you consider the headwinds from trade overall, when you consider Boeing and its uh, crisis, this is a big part of the American economy. So there's the Boeing issue there as well. The consumer, though, doing very, very well behaving quite strongly. Uh, And so I would say hanging in there. This is a deceleration of growth from earlier in the year, no question. But hanging in. So the big debate right now all the the money nerds are having, the finance nerds are having is, is, wait, is 2.1% economic growth in the second quarter, um, is that justify a a, a rate cut right now in an economy that is growing overall with a 50% uh, a 50-year low for the unemployment rate uh, and earnings that have been coming in um, great if you look at consumer, uh, consumer-led kinds of companies. So that's the debate folks are having this morning on seeing this number. Absolutely. And stock markets trading very close to record highs as yeah. well, just to throw in one other thing. I feel like there's two economies right now in the United States. I mean, the average growth over the last two quarters, 2.6%. But if you look at trade, if you look at business investment, the manufacturing sector, it feels recession-like. But then if you look at the consumer, you look at jobs, yeah. wages, it's a far better economy. It's a tough one for the Fed here. It is. It's also tough when you've got sort of a microphone at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue that's screaming that you want to. It's the best economy in the history of the world. That's what the president says. But he wants a rate cut. Uh, And so those two ideas don't seem to mesh here. Although looking into these numbers, I will say you look at the fourth quarter of last year was weaker than thought. looks like that was that was downwardly revised pretty substantially, which means that last year might not have been that big, you know, three percent growth year that the White House uh, wanted so badly. Uh, And that is what the promise has been from this from the White House official statistics where, you know, we expect three percent growth. The president has said three, four or five percent growth on the backs of regulatory cuts uh, on the backs of uh, of the, the tax cuts. It just hasn't really come in there. That that Trump economic miracle uh, that he has promised, supercharged growth, just it hasn't really materialized quite yet. And it looks like even like last year might not have been as strong as we thought. You have to say it feels like an economic miracle if uh, if it belonged to any other country, basically in the G10. Quite frankly, I think they'd be delighted. Um, Christine Romans, that's thank true. You so much. It's for all that. relative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. See, it's Friday. Glass always half full on Fridays. Let's move on to our next driver. Alphabet shares are set to open up 8% plus potentially with their Q2 earnings beating expectations lifted by cloud and advertising gains here. But uh, the key point, I think perhaps the company authorizing a $25 billion buyback. Anna Stewart joins us. Uh, it's a sign of great confidence in the future or that the company feels like their stock looks cheap here or you simply have lots of money, Anna, when you're announcing a $25 billion buyback. Perhaps all of the above. I was, I was going to say, I'm going to check the box for all of the above. I think it shows that there is a celebration of what is a fairly robust earnings report. Also, that management does care about the share price and it is rewarding its investors. And I'm sure we'll see that share price higher on the open today. Uh, to run you through those highlights that you mentioned, ad revenue, that was the big one. It's the one that investors were really worried about after Q1 because it looked like maybe the advertising revenue was beginning to mature. Maybe it was the competition, not just from Facebook, but also, of course, Amazon, Alibaba. Maybe that was beginning to bite. It beat last quarter. It also beat expectations for this quarter. And then, as you said, Google Cloud. This I find interesting because Google doesn't often divulge the information. We haven't had uh, any numbers on this since the end of 2017. But they say they project their cloud business will have an annual run rate of $8 billion. 
great news, but it does highlight the fact that we don't have much transparency when it comes to Alphabet earnings in terms of we know what's doing well because they may decide to divulge certain units. But we don't necessarily which units are underperforming. Julia? Yeah, you made such a great point here. I mean, we don't even have uh, intrinsic details on uh, YouTube either, which is arguably the advertising powerhouse here, which I find quite fascinating. But uh, the other thing, of course, is regulatory excitement that we've had this week in particular. And I was looking at the earnings transcript 52 minutes into a 58 (laughs) minute call before the CEO even talked about it tells you something. Yeah, I was listening in. It took some time, didn't it? Very interesting because they are under sort of tech clash, I guess, the United States. This week, of course, the Department of Justice, but also the House of Representatives, the Trade Commission, uh, state attorney generals. They are under attack from all sides, but so are all of its rivals. It was interesting that the response from the CEO, Sundar Pichai, was it's not new to us. He will engage constructively. He is committed to addressing any concerns, but frankly, he shrugged it off, saying that they've experienced similar, both in the States, and you have to remember in Europe as well, since 2017, Google has amassed fines totaling over $9 billion in Europe. An absolutely huge uh, fine, if you think about it. But um, also, I think you've got to look in terms of stateside. Is this politically motivated? Is tech regulation a bit of a political football? If it is, this may be vaguely temporary. It might not have teeth to it. And regardless, it will hit it, but all of its rivals as well. Julia? Yeah, $121 billion cash on the balance sheet. That gives you some perspective and context on the size of the fine, yeah. They don't care. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on and talk Amazon's earnings as well. Their run of record profits has ended. They made a mere $2.6 billion in the second quarter year on year, of course. It comes as Amazon makes big investments in one-day shipping. Claire Sebastian is on this story for us. Claire, it was interesting to see what the CFO said. It does create a shock to the system, the cost of being able to provide one-day shipping for Prime members. Not only about this, but this was a huge issue. Yeah, this was the biggest issue, Julia, by far. He said that they had predicted it would cost $800 million in the last quarter, and it came in above that. He said things like extra transportation costs, the cost of moving products to fulfillment centers so they would be nearer to customers. He did say that the customer response has been really good, but the one that the street was really watching is the fact that he said that they're, they're in the middle of this journey. This is going to go on uh, for multiple quarters. And I want to bring up the picture of where we see Amazon's profits, the evolution of Amazon's profits over time, because it was in the fourth quarter of 2017 that we really saw a sea change in, in how much money they were making. They topped uh, a billion dollars for the first time after, after never doing that before. And, and I think now that we see this deceleration, people are starting to think, are we in a new investment cycle? Is this uh, another shift back to the kind of high growth, high investment model that Amazon has really come to define? And I think that's, that's why we see a bit of a dip in the share price today. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, the cloud services... The Amazon Web Services, I saw that mentioned several times as slowing. Revenues are only growing at 37% now year on year, not what we've seen for the last several quarters, which was 40%. I mean, when you're complaining about 37% year on year growth, I wonder whether you need a reality check here, Keller. Well, I was going to say, if 37% is bad, that really gives you the big picture. But I go back (laughs) to the numbers that I always look at with uh, AWS. It accounts for this quarter 13% of revenues, 80% 
of profit. That is why it's so important to Amazon. This is the key profit driver. This is why they're able to invest so much in the retail business. And the key word here, Julia, uh, just as it is in retail, is competition. They have to stay vigilant. They're the market leader, but their market share has been flatlining a bit, while the others like, uh, like Google, like Microsoft, have been growing. And we saw just this quarter, Microsoft's cloud division grew 39% higher than uh, uh, Amazon's 37%. Azure grew at 64%. That's the key competitor to AWS. So they, they say they're spending more on things like sales and marketing, and it looks like they have to, to stay ahead of the competition. Again, we're back to this point. They're back into an investment cycle. It's such a great point, Claire. When you've got the largest market share, it's only yours to lose. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, SoftBank is the focus of our next driver, launching a Vision Fund Mark II. This time they're expecting to raise a slightly bigger fund, $108 billion. The focus will be on artificial intelligence. Sharice Pham joins us. Sharice, great to have you with us. The key point here, I think, with the Mark II of the Vision Fund is this time around, SoftBank itself is the anchor investor. No Saudis invited, it seems. It seems they are not invited to this party, Julia. And I have to say, I went back to the last time we talked about SoftBank and you predicted this. You said that the next Vision Fund 2 likely will not come with Saudi cash. I was a little skeptical. You win that bet uh, because among the dozen or so companies, I think uh, 13 companies and institutions and banks were listed as partners for this $108 billion Vision Fund 2, companies like Apple, which is a repeat investor, Foxconn, another repeat investor, and some other names, Microsoft, and a new name, the, uh, the investment fund of the government of Kazakhstan, they're all in on this new fund. But of course, the biggest name that is not on that list is the Saudi government. Of course, Masayoshi San had to distance himself from the Saudi government after the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, when he was asked about it back in May during an earnings report when he announced the formation of Vision Fund 2, he was cagey and he said, you know, we haven't decided on investors. It's too early. Now we have a few more details and we are seeing the Saudis. They are not listed here, Julia. Yeah, it's interesting. And it, it, he clearly was uncomfortable being uh, being asked about that, I think. But, you know, if we just look at this in isolation, the, the benefit of having a huge investor like the Saudis was that it was a, a sort of counterbalance to Amashiyoshi son himself and his investment decisions. I mean, I remember that WeWork investment where there was a rumor that he was going to add an extra $16 billion to the $8 billion he'd already invested. And the added investment only ended up being $2 billion. I just wonder whether um, there'll be a concern from some of the big players here that he's kind of let loose if he doesn't have a giant investor in the form of a, a Saudi this time around. I think those are interesting points that you raise. However, when that story came out, there didn't seem to be much reporting surrounding the surrounding saying that the Saudis were the ones that pulled uh, Massa back from making that giant second additional investment in WeWork. As far as we can see and as far as our reporting has shown, this has always been Masayoshi Son's show. You have you had a huge anchor investor in Saudi, but you have other big players as well. Apple uh, put up, I think, a billion dollars in Vision Fund One. They're probably putting up a decent amount of change in this one, too. Microsoft, Foxconn, these aren't uh, companies that are shrinking violets. But Masayoshi Son, he is he is the visionary of the vision funds and he wants to have a stake in the companies that will lead the AI revolution.
Yeah, you don't have a career like his, I think, without knowing exactly what you want to do and uh, going and doing it. <laughs> Sharice Pham, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. North Korea says it launched two short-range missiles Thursday as a warning to South Korea. The tests were reportedly ordered personally by leader Kim Jong-un. It comes ahead of Seoul's joint military exercises with the United States, set to begin next month. More than 100 migrants have died after a shipwreck off the coast of Libya. Those migrants, like thousands before them, made the risky journey to escape violence and poverty back home. Survivors are being sent back to Libya, where they face more danger amid that country's civil war. Live pictures now from Hong Kong, where protesters are taking their fight to the city's international airport. Scores of demonstrators dressed in black, the color of the protest movement, have taken over the arrival hall. They're calling attention to safety after a mob attack on a train station sent 45 people to hospital last Sunday. British police are hunting for two armed men who attempted to rob the Arsenal football stars Metsut Ozil and Siad Kolesniak. The masked men pulled alongside the footballer's vehicle on a moped in North London. The Bosnian footballer Kolesniak is seen leaping out of the car unarmed to confront the would-be robbers before chasing them away. Yes, that'll teach you to take on someone called the tank. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, coming up here on First Move, a rollercoaster week for Facebook and big tech, of course, with an antitrust probe looming. But what does it mean, really? And proof that nice guys finish first. How this tech company is changing the world by taking on the almost impossible. To first move where U.S. stocks look set to open higher after uh, Thursday's what, slight pullback. The Nasdaq fell some 1% yesterday. The Dow beginning today's session at a two-week low. I'll call that trading around uh, near record highs. New GDP numbers this morning showing uh, the U.S. economy growing at a 2.1% annualized rate in the second quarter. Better than expected, but obviously less than that Q1 level of above 3%. The strong consumer and government spending offsetting a drop in business investment and net exports, of course, too. Twitter is the last of the big tech companies to report profits this week. Shares are set to rally after the company reported a greater than expected jump in daily active users. That's their new metric, of course, for measuring user growth. Ad revenue also rose by a better than expected 21%. And what a week it's been for uh, big tech. The U.S. Justice Department launching an antitrust probe. Investors given a pause for thought there. Facebook, Amazon and Alphabet are all likely candidates. For the inside track, we're joined by Roger McNamee, a former mentor to Mark Zuckerberg. He's also the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe and now Managing Director and Co-Founder of Elevation Partners. Roger, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You've Julia argued likewise. consistently that we need to see much more antitrust intervention here. Are you worried or how worried do you think the big tech companies are at this stage about what we've heard this week? Because it's not just about the DOJ, it's the SEC, it's the FTC, it's a whole host of them. There's no sign yet, Julia, that the big tech companies are worried. You can see Wall Street is not worried. And I think in many ways that's the metric that they will use to decide when it's time to panic. But I believe there has been a massive change in the state of affairs relative to the government. The Trump administration's Department of Justice, the Antitrust Division, the Federal Trade Commission, the SEC are all investigating not only Facebook, but Amazon, Google, 
and I hope at some point Microsoft, because surveillance capitalism, which is this business model these companies use of gathering massive amounts of data and using it to manipulate the behavior of the people who use their products, that has created massive issues, not just in competitions, which is what antitrust is about, but also for public health, for elections, as we know, and also privacy. And those are going to require new legislation, which I hope the government will undertake relatively soon. You've called this surveillance capitalism. The fact that for most consumers, we're not even aware that websites, apps, we can say Facebook, but to your point, it's far broader than that, are continually collecting our data where we've been. And right now we can say, look, you're not allowed to use that data if you're smart enough to know how to stop that, but we can't stop them collecting it. Do you think that that's easier to achieve than perhaps antitrust? Well, you know, Julia, antitrust? Th- this is, a, this is the important question that we need to answer right now. The challenge that we face, and a Harvard professor by the name of Shoshana Zuboff is the person who coined the term surveillance capitalism. She wrote a brilliant book earlier this year that really describes how this economy works. And it's not just the Internet platforms. It's really every business we touch is collecting data. And the problem is whether it's banks or credit card processors, healthcare companies, cellular companies, online applications, affinity cards, they're all collecting data and they will sell it to pretty much anybody who wants to buy it. And now companies like Amazon have Alexa, Google has, you know, Google Assistant and Google Home, uh, Facebook has got Portal, you know, you have projects in New York City at Hudson Yards and in Toronto where Google's Sidewalk Labs is putting surveillance absolutely everywhere. And, you know, these things are incredibly in my mind, dangerous to society because we lose any sense of privacy, any sense of control over our lives. And to do that without a discussion, I think, is inappropriate. I think the important thing is let's get the facts out there, which is what I'm trying to do. Let's have a fulsome discussion and see what people think, because there's a lot more going on here than consumers realize. And I think once they discover what's going on, they're going to want to have, I think, at least some level of regulation, not just on antitrust for competition, but also of the way data is collected and traded. I mean, if we could crack down on this, this would then have an impact on the business model, because in the end, selling that data, access to that data is what advertisers care about. So if we did see greater restrictions on this, you know, then at least it would have a material impact, whereas a a $5 billion fine for Facebook this week is, is peanuts. And Julia, that is precisely the point. The way I look at this, and I I think the way all of our viewers should be looking at this, is that Internet platforms are today what chemical companies were in the United States, say, around 1950. Chemical companies were growing incredibly rapidly. They were unbelievably profitable because they poured their waste products, products like mercury and chromium, into fresh water, polluting rivers and streams. They would leave the tailings from mines on the side of hills. They would pour spent fuel into sewers. And they never had to bear any cost for that until the 80s. And eventually society caught up with them and made them bear the cost of that. And it turned out the chemical industry wasn't nearly as profitable. And I think in the case of Facebook, the damage that they've caused to public health, democracy, privacy, and, and competition would probably make Facebook unprofitable if they had to bear all the costs that they create. And in Google's case, it would reduce the profits dramatically. And I just think it's a matter of time until society recognizes that you have to make the people who create costs 
pay them. It's not fair to make society pay all those costs. You know, in the end, if you want to take antitrust action, you have to prove that the consumer has been hurt. And at this stage, I'm not sure whether the consumer would want to see action. You know, we love ride sharing. Amazon's revolutionized our lives and made shopping easier. Wherever I look here, I see utility benefits. Facebook, it's free. It's a utility value. It's a communication tool. Yeah, so Julia- That's a problem for me. Well, and here's the thing. I think the questions you're asking are right on. I think there are two points we really need to explore here. The first is, relative to products like Facebook and Google and some of Microsoft's products, they aren't actually free. It's a barter of a service for data. And what's going on is that the value of that data is rising much more rapidly than the value of the service. So in fact, consumers are being harmed in the form of a higher price to them. So in antitrust terms, there really is an issue here. But the second thing we want to remember is that the deal you're doing here is not the one you think is going on, right? Most of us think we give up a little personal data in exchange for a service we love. And that was certainly true until five years ago, but it's not true anymore. Now they're collecting data everywhere and they are manipulating us. They're manipulating the choices that are available to us. There is no reason we're going to have to give up the things we like. It's really obvious that all these services are valuable. And Roger, I have to stop you there because we've got the market open. We will get you I back understand. and talk about this My more. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, you Julia. Thank you so much. Every time I speak to you, I think we should be buying tech. It's not happening anytime soon. Regulation, not happening anytime soon. Roger McNamee, the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Elevation Partners. So thank you for joining us. The market open is next. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell for the final time this week and a positive open for U.S. stocks this morning, taking back some of the losses that we saw, of course, in yesterday's trading session. Better than expected growth numbers from the United States for the second quarter this morning, significantly lower than the first quarter, of course, but better than expected. And that was the last piece of economic data, key economic data, before the Fed meeting next week. We've also got more earnings, of course, Apple on tap and trade talks. Stephen Mnuchin and uh, trade representative uh, Bob Lighthizer heading to Beijing. So plenty to watch next week, too. What about for our global movers right now? I can tell you we've got a number of them in focus. Twitter, second quarter earnings beating expectations. They reached 139 million monetizable daily active users. That was a 14% increase year over year. It's the first report, of course, not to disclose the monthly active users. So a change there in how they report revenues. Meanwhile, up some 18% year on year. Starbucks, the coffee chain's quarterly earnings beating estimates. They raised their full year earnings and revenue guidance as well. Sales at US stores open for at least a year grew some 7% boosted by 3% traffic growth. It comes after months of struggling to improve that traffic. Sales at stores in China open at least a year, jumped 6%. That's good news for the company too. That despite the broader economic growth concerns over there and competition from rival Luckin Coffee. What about Intel too? Apple buying the chipmaker's smartphone modem business for some $1 billion. It had been rumored the deal is expected to close later this year. Aiza Garcia joins us now on this story. This is an interesting one for me, smart from Apple, because it gives them diversification. 
Obviously, they were switching between Qualcomm and Intel here when they want to buy their chips. Now, Intel in-house. Yeah, the deal is really a good move for Apple because it gives them access to about 2,000 new employees from Intel who will now join Apple. It gives them access to intellectual property as well as leases and equipment. And it's a crucial time right now because um, Apple has reported iPhone sales are slumping as people are not as quick to replace phones. They're lasting longer. And so this gives them more control over the entire smartphone ecosystem. Um, they're able to bring that in-house and kind of maybe counteract some of the kind of hurt that they're feeling from those slumping sales. And what does this mean for Qualcomm, of course? Because we know and we've talked, long talked about the battle that Apple was in with Qualcomm over chips. Where does this leave Qualcomm now? Um, it, you know, I think it, it'll still shake out. We'll still have to, it remains to be seen kind of how the, how that will impact their bottom line in the end. Um, but obviously it's not, it's not good news for them. Um, their stock was down when the initial reports of the potential deal between Apple and Intel were first reported. Um, so again, it remains to be seen. They may be able to pivot, partner with some other big, uh, smartphone maker. And there are other ways to kind of get involved in the 5G, um, ecosystem beyond just smartphones. So maybe there's room for that um, as well. But, you know, we'll continue to see those impacts, I'm sure, as the deal is finalized, if that happens, and then, you know, kind of moving forward as 5G rolls out across the world, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting for me for Android and for what Google does here, because suddenly they don't have the option of Intel chips now either. So it could be quite interesting for Qualcomm here because literally Android phones now are purely reliant on them. I wonder whether they might be quietly cheering at this stage too. Aiza, great to have you with us. Aiza Garcia there. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but still ahead, going negative, Wall Street debates the effects of stimulus and the effectiveness of stimulus as the Fed begins its policy debate and more government yields turn negative. What does this all mean for investors? We'll be asking. Stay with us. Back to first move. U.S. stocks still higher in early trading. Tech stocks are the outperformers thanks to strong results from the likes of Alphabet, Intel and Twitter, as we've mentioned. In the meantime, shares are higher in Europe, too, and it was a pretty mixed day in Asia. Tons of debate in both regions about the effectiveness of further stimulus with bond yields deeply in negative territory. In fact, 25 percent now, I believe, globally of sovereign bonds in negative territories so and negative yields. In Europe, German bonds have traded at record lows this week of minus 0.42 percent. Switzerland and Denmark have seen their entire yield curves go negative. France is now selling 10-year bonds with negative yields and yields on Greek government debt have been trading below 2% for the first time ever. What does this all mean? Joining me now, Stephen Englander is the global head of G10 FX Research and North American Macro Strategy at Standard Chartered. Fantastic to have you with us. It's always a pleasure. And happy Friday. Let's talk about the GDP numbers, the yes. uh, second quarter GDP numbers, because there's components in that which do send signals to the Federal Reserve, particularly inflation signals. In, in, indeed, and I want to actually pay attention to the GDP output number. What was important is that they did five years of revisions to right. the GDP data. And the big outcome is that inflation is lower than we thought. Um, the market-based core PCE for Q2 was 1.5. The regular core PCE is 1.8. The market was expecting two. And this is something that the Federal Reserve 
very much pays attention to here. Well, it, it gives a lot of ammunition to the doves who are saying, look, we got to worry that not only are we missing our targets, we're, we're sort we're of moving away from we're it. We're missing our targets and getting closer to the zero bound. Yeah. So, you know, I think that 50 would be under discussion had they not kind of had that kerfuffle last week and then sort of come out and saying, we're doing 25, don't worry about it. Oh, interesting. Doesn't mean it would have been done, but it certainly would have been discussed. So you think it's basically been ruled out because they simply don't want to further confuse? Well, it's how much do they want to surprise and how, you know, how important is it doing, say, 25 and, say, 25 versus doing 50? I don't think it's important, and I don't think that they think it's important. Yeah, so you're saying how important is it at this stage to cut by half a percentage point versus doing it one now and another quarter point cut later on um, this year. Is there a benefit? Because, you know, we've had the discussion on the show. Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley said there is a benefit. The data shows that if you cut fast and furious, starting out early, you can actually save yourself cuts going forward. And when we're talking about so many bonds around the world with negative yields and simply not seeing inflation coming up, um, you kind of have to save ammunition, don't you? So if you can do more early and save yourself later on, you should do it. Well, I'd say most of the models that they have and, and the kind of the evidence that we have is that what matters is how low and how long, kind right. of the cumulative ease that you have there. Um, surprising by 50 now, but then holding back in, in two months, it, it makes a very small difference in, in, in terms of what actually happens. Um, temporarily, there could be a signaling effect but what really matters is how far you take it and how long you keep it there. What I said on the show earlier was that it feels like there's two US economies. There's the consumer side, the jobs market that, that looks incredibly strong. And then if you look at trade, you look at manufacturing, you look at business investment in particular, it's got a kind of recessionary, well, a material slowdown feel to it. Would you agree with that? Well, it's certainly the case. I mean, we've been seeing uh, manufacturing PMIs kind of s- slowing and, and, you know, services PMIs looking okay. Employment is great. Claims super low yesterday. I, I think the, you know, the core of the economy is a service-based economy that keeps on hiring and where you're just not seeing a lot of wage and price pressures. Right. And that's like, you know, 80%, 85% of the, the economy. The manufacturing component is it's tiny, relatively small. Yeah. And Weirdly enough, employment and manufacturing has been doing very well, uh, despi- you know, by, certainly by historical standards, right. despite you know, the, the concerns about manufacturing production and where it's headed. So if we're talking about borderline concerns, not only about low inflation, but perhaps softening inflation at this stage, what should investors be looking at? You made the point before we came on air that it's an argument for buying gold here. Yeah, look, you know, there are so many fixed income assets with negative yields and low yields. Um, You know, gold, we think, is under-owned. We we just published a piece, my my commodities colleague, who um, there was a survey that suggests that central banks, you know, are are kind of ramping up or are thinking they're going to be ramping up their gold buying. Retail seems to be lagging. Gold looks attractive. Uh, we think emerging markets, all the guys who had funding issues last year because U.S. rates are going up, literally this is Christmas in July for them. <laughs> Where does this all end up? Where do we end up when we're talking, and just to, so our viewers understand, when you're talking about negative bond yields, you're talking about as an investor or a buyer of those bonds, 
effectively paying the government for them borrowing money from you. I mean, it's, it's bonkers. It, it, it is. I think the, the, what it reflects is the political failure uh, of being able to bring fiscal uh, to bear when it's clearly needed. Right. And I think ultimately what's going to happen is that the ECB and the other central banks with negative rates, they'll do one more round of cuts and turn to their finance ministers and say, look, you know, cupboard's Time empty. To spend. We, 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 there's nothing left. You know, we, we, we did a round that we actually didn't think was going to work and it didn't work. You, you have to do fiscal. And I think if you look at Draghi at Sintra when he was speaking for himself and Draghi yesterday when he was speaking for the ECB, he was most enthusiastic about fiscal and he, he's, he didn't seem that convinced himself that the other measures were, were, were going to work. Yeah, I've been to many of those meetings over the last few years and he's always reiterated the need for governments to do more and uh, yeah, in short supply. Stephen Englander, Standard Chartered, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Always the message there is by gold. All right, let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Chinese state media reports that Beijing officials suspect FedEx of holding back more than 100 packages that tech firm Huawei was trying to deliver to China. The Chinese government opened a probe nearly two months ago after Huawei said FedEx had diverted China-bound packages to the U.S. No response from FedEx as yet. Shares in French luxury fashion house Kering are sharply down. It follows a slowdown in sales at its Gucci brand. Gucci accounts for more than half of Kering's revenues. Total revenue still rose some 15% in the first half, and shares are up 14% year-to-date. And there was a sweet treat for Nestle, which is marking a sales boost for the first half of 2019. Strong demand in the U.S. and Brazil, fueling growth of around 3.6% in sales, making 2019 the food giant's highest half-yearly sales in four years. All right, so when we return, an extremely lucrative business whose sole purpose is helping others. Sound impossible? I promise you it's not. My conversation with the CEO of Not Impossible Labs, next. Welcome back to First Move and straight into the chat room. There's a California-based tech company that's making the impossible possible. It's called Not Impossible Labs. It's an innovation lab and storytelling studio focused on developing technology for social good. Their business model is simple, find a problem and fix it. So they set up a 3D printing lab in war-torn Sudan to help those who'd lost limbs and created wearables that allow the deaf to experience music through vibrations. I sat down with the founder and CEO Mick Ebling and asked him how he got started. I'm the luckiest person in the world because I get to look at these real-world absurdities that exist. When you see something and you go, okay, that shouldn't be that way, that doesn't make sense. And then we dogpile on it with our team and, and makers and programmers and technologists and hackers and we solve that problem for one person. And that's really, that's part of our design process. We solve it for one person, then we tell the story of that solution for one person. And in doing so, our corporate partners, the Intels or the Zappos or Avnet or these companies who, have, who are really passionate about this, they take it and they help us amplify the story, which that's this beautiful cycle they have this incredible outpouring of support for their companies and their brands, and it helps scale the solution so more people can be helped. So I think, I think it's such a, an important distinction right now. Companies are realizing that doing good is not relegated to the, the big charities. The responsibility, and, and Larry Fink wrote about it in his Davos letter this year, it's about corporations saying, wait a second, we can go do good 
we can do more good than if sitting back and letting charities do it. And it's good for our business. Business improves. People want to work for your companies. It's easier to retain them. Companies grow faster when they do good. So that's this cycle of, of our business. We're not a nonprofit. We're a business, and yeah, we're really proving that. This is not charity. Even though no. you're solving a problem for one person, it's scalable to some degree. But it's the social good. Absolutely. It's the benefit for business. It's hiring talent. It's we're in an era, I think, more and more where young people want to go and work for a business that's doing good. And so there's a business so reason true. for businesses to be involved in this kind of thing. And isn't that beautiful when businesses say, wait, I mean, we're sitting on the New York Stock Exchange. When businesses say doing good is actually going to help my, my, my share price, my stock value, and then the world gets helped and more people want to work for that company, then you've got this cycle where now the world is actually advancing because of business. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Evelyn says that much of Not Impossible success comes from working closely with its partners to find fresh world absurdities to solve. And the innovations they create often end up helping in more ways than one. Evelyn told me that's one of the things he truly loves about his work. I, I love what I do. I love what I do. I love partnering with our partners because they, they wield this really big sword that we can then use to go and, and slay dragons to, that are actually advancing the world. And so it's just, yeah, we're pretty lucky. Not impossible. We get to make the impossible not impossible. <laughs> I mean, how much luckier can I be? You're a music producer and you spotted a problem, an artist with ALS, and you were like, actually, how can I help him continue to, to create his art? How, as an entrepreneur, do you go from doing one job to spotting a problem, as you say, and going, actually, I can... I can turn this into a business, actually. It's not a charity, as right. you've said. Um, I can make this work. The first, the first time, the very first thing that we did is was we created the iWriter, which we spotted a, we were introduced to a paralyzed uh, street artist who had ALS and was lying motionless in a bed for seven years and able to talk and able to communicate and didn't have access. This was the discovery, the aha moment, that he did not have access to the Stephen Hawking machines that I thought were ubiquitous. And we said, well, that's not right. Let's hack a solution together and make it so he has that access to communication. And that was a total fluke. It was a total accident. But that ended up becoming Time Magazine's top 50 inventions of the year. And it made us say, okay, wait a second. This whole using technology to help people, there's this energy there's this there's meat on the bone there like maybe we should keep doing that and that was kind of the birth of non impossible labs are you profitable as a company very profitable <laughs> because we're able to create things that we incubate we incubate in the most frugal and smart way and then our corporate partners come on board and help us amplify that message to then do good so not only do we make money in our partnerships but then the devices that we create have lives unto themselves to say I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of new companies and it's very rare that when I ask one like that if they're profitable they go absolutely but maybe that's a, a measure of the man here and the individual that's built this. Anyway, assistive technologies could be a $26 billion industry by 2024. That's according to the research firm Coherent Market Insights. A lucrative opportunity perhaps then to lure potential investors 
Ebeling also noted, however, that people are simply living longer today too. And as a result, his company is coming up with new inventions and innovations to extend the quality of that extended life. Listen in. We just created a, um, what we consider to be one of the world's lowest cost, lightest modular mobility devices. Why is that important? We're living longer. Um, people don't want to be driving around in these ugly little carts when we only want to be driving a Tesla. So we made, it this, we made this sexy mobility device that is now light and modular. So now, and it's also what's key to everything we make is it has to be accessible. So it's the cheapest thing on the market. Are you looking for investors, Absolutely. direct money to scale up? Absolutely. And not only in um, launching these absurdity projects that we do where we, we incubate the technology, but after we've created these things, people coming in and saying, okay, that was amazing. That's an amazing, has amazing potential. We want to invest and scale this bigger. Okay. Our principle is help one, help many. We help one by incubating this technology to help a person, but the many is where we truly see kind of leaving our, our impact on the world, when more people can have access to low-cost, inexpensive solutions that have true business principles underlying them. And you can operate internationally or around the world. Absolutely. Good, good doesn't have a, have a border to no, it. No, it doesn't. So that was Mick Eberling there, the founder and CEO of Not Impossible Labs. All right, we're just about wrapping up the show here, but let me give you a look at what we're seeing right now for U.S. markets. We are in a positive territory. The Nasdaq, of course, as you can see, outperforming. There are a whole deluge of earnings managing it to lift us higher. Of course, Alphabet, one of the key ones there that are adding to the markets at this stage and now more than taking back yesterday's losses in the session too. Plenty coming up. Apple, of course, going to be the one to focus on next week and trade talks as well. What about some of the movies that we're watching as well? Twitter adding to some of the gains that we're seeing here. Some, uh, what, seven... Uh, Q2 earnings beating expectations with 139 million monetizable daily active users. They're up 9%, as you can see, they're up more than $41. Starbucks also having a great session as well, lifting us here to up some 6.5%. Quarterly earnings beating estimates, but it was all about the forecast there, raising their full year earnings and revenue forecast and strength in China. Remember, we spoke to you at Locking Coffee, the CFO over there, increased competition from a rival, a Chinese based rival there um, over in China. But Starbucks still managing to bring it to and Intel, of course, Apple buying the chipmakers smartphone modem business for a billion dollars. I made the point, of course, it could be interesting for Qualcomm now that Android Google phones are purely reliant on Qualcomm going forward. That's an interesting one. I'll be back in a couple of hours time on the express to track the movements of these markets but for now that's it for the show i'm julia chatley you can also listen to our podcast cnn.com podcast but for now you've been watching first move time to go make yours and have a happy friday we all do things our own way and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique you need a bed that fits you just the right way Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.